Today is Tuesday, September 1st, 2020, time for episode negative one of the Roman Agenda podcast. This is your host, Roman McLean. I am a diehard Roman Catholic, and I'm taking advantage of the fact that I can post this on Ann Barnhart's podcast feed, and, well, she gave me permission to. I wouldn't do it if she didn't. But uh, if you're hearing this, um, you're hearing it through Ann's podcast, and you might recognize the voice but not the name. Who? What's the difference between Roman McLean and Super Nerd? Uh, it's the difference between Munus and Minister. I'm Roman McLean is the minister and Super Nerd is a Munus, and somebody else could fill that at some point in the future. Um, I I mentioned this is the negative one episode of the podcast. What does that mean? Um, what it means is that I wasn't ready to fully launch a podcast yet, but I want to get this published now because it's somewhat time sensitive. Um, this is an interview with Louis Tofari of RomanitasPress.com. He's going to be starting a course next week, October 5th, on how to serve the traditional Latin Mass. This is a course for men and for boys. And I just realized I've been saying Tuesday, October 1st. It's actually Thursday. I'm, I didn't flip my calendar yet, so I'm looking at Tuesday, September 1st. Be that as it may. This this uh, course that Lewis is doing is not only meant to teach somebody how to to serve the mass it certainly is the primary goal but a secondary goal even if you were never interested in learning to serve mass but you wanted to understand more about why the 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 rubrics are the way they are what the prayers mean this is definitely a course you should take interest in or at least listen to the podcast and decide if this is something in which you want to enroll at the worst case scenario, even if you take this course and you never serve a mass, your appreciation and understanding of what the rubrics and the ceremonies of the Latin mass are will be greatly improved. And as I mentioned in the podcast, it there is the rule in, in spiritual theology that the more prepared you are, the more the more disposed you are to receive a grace, the more you can receive from it. In the same sense, if you take a one-gallon bucket to a waterfall, you can walk away with, a, with, with one one gallon of water. If you take a 55-gallon barrel... You can walk away with more, obviously. The more disposed you are, the more capability you have to receive grace. So the the topic of you know learning the traditional Latin Mass and what the, the prayers mean, what the, the symbolism means, this is a topic that could never be exhausted. And hopefully at some point in the future on the Barnhart Podcast, we'll get back to exploring the Mass uh, from start to finish. And um, that would be a wonderful series to to do and to... Uh, engage in. But until then, I will now transition to my interview with Louis Tafari of Romanitas Press. Enjoy. All right. So Louis, we were this 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 conversation, this whole uh, episode started when uh, the topic of prepping was was covered on Ann Barnhart's podcast recently, and and uh, made a follow up pod uh, fo- a follow up post uh, that Ann um, echoed about uh, what it is. What, when the church goes underground in the not so distant future, well, we don't know when it's going to be, but when it goes underground, there are going to be some practical considerations that have to be taken into account. And one of the things I I mentioned was men are going to need to learn how to serve the mass. And I knew that that uh, Romanitas Press was an excellent source for the server cards. The I believe you still have not not just the how to how to um, do the responses for the mass, but also Latin pronunciation. And it turns out you've got an entire webinar that you're going to be doing on teaching people how to serve serve the mass. Yeah. Why don't we lead on into this? Uh, tell tell people who have never heard anything about this, who didn't know the the mass wasn't in English or Spanish. Tell us about the Latin mass here, and and what does what does somebody need to know in order to participate at and serve at the Latin mass? Well, obviously, so the the Roman mass, traditional Roman mass, is. is uh, offered primarily in the Latin language. There's a little bit of Greek, a little bit of Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. They're all Latinized in their pronunciation. Um, the church has used Latin for centuries, at least since Pope St. Uh, Damasus. So we're talking about the third century uh, when it transferred, when it transitioned from Greek into Latin. Um, Latin's been continued to be used by the Roman or Latin church. Um, it's not only because it's a form of a sacred language in regards to the sacred liturgy, it's also a uh, bulk work against, um, you might say, mistranslations of what words actually mean, especially theologically. Um, so Latin being somewhat a dead language, at least in the vocabulary, the meanings that we have today theologically are the same today as they were, you know, 2,000 years so ago. In the they time of Tertullian or in the time of Augustine. 
yes, they have not changed one bit. When we when we when we look at the Nicene Creed, those definitions in Latin have not changed one iota. To use a Greek word, iota. Okay, but they have not changed. Okay, um, there's also Latin is actually a, a, a hieratic language, as they call it, meaning it's 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 sacred. Okay, it's it's used for an elevated purpose. It has a formal sense to it. Um, in fact, even the form of Latin that we use was the um, under the um, Imperial Roman Empire, the pagans. Um, we see this especially in the Roman canon. The style of Latin used is called Italovetus, which means the ancient uh, Italian or Latin is what they're saying. Um, and it's actually a heretic form that was reserved only for very formal uh, civil occasions or even religious purposes. So the the Catholic Church adopted its use for Christianity in the most sacred part of the liturgy, um, meaning the Holy Sacrifice and the Mass. We also see Latin is um, a form of unity, because obviously if we're all using the same language, um, Latin is not terribly difficult to, to learn, rudimentary, um, to understand. Um, you don't even necessarily need to know Latin um, fluently to understand it because in the mass, you know, those, some of the same phrases are going to be used all the time. Dominus obisco, mecum spiritu tuo, et cetera. Obviously the prayers of the canon change very And little. obviously that sounds a lot more complex what you just said right now, but anybody listening to what we're saying in our language that we're saying it right now, the majority of the English language derives from Latin. The original speakers... 85% of it, at least, yeah. Right, the original speakers of the English language all spoke Latin, all the educated class, so they borrowed the the syntax, not the syntax, but they, they borrowed the vocabulary of the language they all knew how to speak into right. this new Anglo-Saxon combination and what we speak the now. The vast majority of English are derivatives of Latin. Um, and then, of course, we have a sprinkling of German and everything else in there, and our... our or Saxon roots and stuff like that, Norman roots. Okay. But, uh, you know, as an example, uh, you know, before I ever learned any Latin, I actually opened up an altar missile that, uh, my aunt and uncle happened to have, which is now in my possession. Um, and I, so I came from the Novus Ordo and I had Eucharistic prayer one pretty much memorized and I'm opening it up for the first time seeing these big giant, you know, Latin letters printed in the missile, which was absolutely awesome to me. And I was figuring out what they said. And I had never taken Latin in my life. I knew a little bit of Spanish. I knew, I, I knew German. Uh, and knowing English the way I've known English, I've always been a student of English. I was able to figure out, knowing also Eucharistic prayer number one, pretty much what they were saying. It was not terribly difficult. And, you know, it's just, it takes a little bit of uh, getting used to hearing it in Latin and everything. Um, but one of the things that's important, of course, is pronouncing Latin correctly. This is one of the things that I've emphasized for a long time. It's I developed a server's mass responses card to help train servers. But it's also good for laity, too, especially if they want to do what's called the dialogue mass, where they, they get to make the responses with the servers, um, which some places do do. And I, I, I do encourage that as long as it can be done well. Um, of course, also pronouncing one of the things I've been wanting to do for years was develop uh, a course where I'm actually teaching people live but to a wider audience, but not only just teaching them verbally as I'm speaking to you now, but using various teaching aids that I've developed, which are very unique um, over the last 20 something years. So, for instance, this Latin webinar that I'm going to begin on uh, Monday, October 5th. It's a four-week course. It's three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. They're at least an hour long. And it's basically a PowerPoint presentation. And because it's done through Zoom, everyone can see the shared screen at once. The, the presentation slides include not just the, the Latin words, but the phonetics underneath, the difficult words we go through, the practice, the practices that we go through. Then I, the other thing that I uniquely offer is that I go through some of the history and spirituality, what's behind these prayers that we are learning, the prayers that the servers make um, in response to the celebrant or, you know, 
so you're learning, you know, what are these things? Why were these prayers chosen? Why are they significant? Um, the deep supernatural um, reason behind these things. So what the server gets from this is not just how to properly pronounce the Roman style of liturgical Latin, what they call more Romano, which is what the church really wants to be used in liturgical functions. But they also now get a sense of this is why these prayers are set. By the way, they also have as part of their home, they have homework assignments as part of this webinar. So part of the things they have to do, for instance, they have to look up Psalm 42. And I actually make them look it up in their Bible because, as many of you may know, part of Psalm 42 is used at the prayers of the footy altar, but not the entire psalm. But it's important that you understand the entire psalm to understand its context at the prayers at the foot of the altar. It's my understanding that liturgically, in a lot of cases, uh, just the beginning of a psalm would be given uh, as a, shall we say, a mental bookmark to include all the meaning that would be in that whole psalm. Correct. So, for example, if you're, only, if you're only reciting the first couple of verses, of, of Psalm 42, you really if, if you don't understand everything com that comes after it, then you're missing a lot of the, the context. That's correct. I've also heard it said, too, that if you really want to understand the Mass for any given day, read the introit, and not just what's actually in the Missal, but the entire psalm, or the entire, um, not the entire psalm, but the the entire chapter from which it's taken, because the that entire, really... It would, be, it would be the entire psalm, because as an example, the introit is a perfect example um, because in the traditional mass, we only see in the ancient papal mass from which this is derived, the entire psalm would have been chanted, interluded by antiphons until the Pope basically, once he was done vesting, it was actually the entrance hymn. That's what the word introitus means. So back in the ancient papal liturgy they didn't you know you didn't sing daily daily sing to mary as they processed up the aisle or there wasn't an organ prelude no they were singing this introit and the scola was alternating from side you know from one side of the choir to the other side of the choir and meanwhile the the pope is actually putting on all the vestments saying the prayers to go with them and when he was done vesting he would basically have, give a signal to the scola master and then they would complete with the gloria patri the doxology, and then and they would repeat the antiphon, and then they would start the mass. Okay, that was the old ancient. So you see a remnant of this in the traditional mass in the present use of the introit today. Um, well, the I mean, only we, time we could do we could do an episode a day for an entire year and never even cover all the richness just at the prayers no, of the foot of the altar. No, I, no. I the the mass is something you can study infinitely and you'll you'll never plumb the the depths of it which makes sense it is the divine mystery revealed to us by god himself he's expressing right. to us something so sublime we could never wrap our minds around it but that doesn't mean that somebody who has an interest in but has never even thought how do i serve the mass before that doesn't mean that that you should be intimidated by that no and, and and one of the questions I got when I I posted the, the the link to your webinar is is somebody said hey I'm I'm 47 or 57 I forget how old he said older than me he said uh, I'm I'm this certain age it would would this uh, course work for me uh, is is right. somebody ever really too old to learn how to serve mass I I would say no I know many years ago there was a gentleman that I trained he was 60 he always always wanted to learn to celebrate mass I mean learn to serve mass. When he was growing up as a kid, though, he grew up on the wrong side, what they called the wrong side of the tracks, meaning because he came from the poor side of the tracks, for whatever reason, that church he was going to would not let him serve. I don't know the full story, except that, that he's, he told me he was never allowed to serve, though he wanted to, because of the situation that he grew up in. So at 60 years old, he presents himself to learn to serve masks. He did a terrific. He was he did a terrific job. And he served for several years until his, his knees couldn't take it anymore. But he was, in fact, he turned out to be out of the entire group that I had. He turned out to be one of the best in the in the in the responses because he, he really just kind of went after it. It was it was very uh, edifying to see this this older gentleman just you know go at it. He was, and he was just thrilled that he could serve mass. And by the way, even if you don't want to serve mass, I think it's important that Catholics 
should know as much about the mass as they they can possibly come to. That doesn't mean you have to spend all day reading books, maybe like I do. But, you know, there's no reason why every Catholic can't know the prayers at the foot of the altar. They're basic. You know, they're basic. And it's not terribly difficult to learn. Well, it informs your your ability to follow along the active participation as yep. Pope St. Pius X actually meant. Right. Um, right. It's it's possible to follow the Mass without without a hand missile, just simply, you know, contemplating the, the whether it's just the... Di- I've heard it referred to that the Mass is a short history of time, um, all, all, you know, from the prayers to the foot of the altar being symbolic of, of uh, the, the Garden of Eden all the way through the end of time at the, at the end of Mass. And there are so many different angles you can go through there. The, the symbology and meaning of the individual prayers uh, throughout the offertory, what, is, what exactly are you offering? Well, it's yourself. You are the one offering it. The priest is, is in persona Christi. You have to unite yourself to it. I mean, we literally could do this every single day for years and never hit the, hit the end of it. So, yeah, if you learn to serve Mass uh, and have a greater appreciation for what's going on, that will only improve your prayer life, whether or not you ever Precisely, have to or yes. get to serve on the altar. I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a thing that, you know, when you, when you know those prayers of the, when you know, the, the, for instance, as an example, just the responses of what the server says, you've just reached another level of understanding the traditional mass. Okay. It's just, it, it, it deepens your appreciation of it. The other thing too is, so this is the other thing that's, that I uniquely offer through these Latin webinars is we're not just covering how you make the responses. There's much more involved. That's one of my things that I'm passionate about is teaching people not just the, the what and the how, but the why, which I, in some ways is even more important because what, what so often happens with the teaching of servers you know, you get your typical, I don't know, seven, eight-year-old, and they, they try to teach him. They give him a little card and say, here, go home and learn. So that's the first problem because they're trying to get him to learn something. It's basically learning a foreign language without learning a foreign language. So you're you're making him do it on his own, which ends up being disastrous, okay? Second thing is if they even have some classes, the person is usually instructing them. It's just trying to get them to pronounce things somewhat correctly. and and But there's almost never any kind of here's why you're doing what you're doing let's take up like i take apart the prayers at the foot of the altar as an example one of the things we discuss is what's called the antiphon psalm doxology antiphon structure well you see this antiphon psalm doxology antiphon structure being continually used in the liturgy over and over again it's the most common of all the structures that are used, whether it's in the Mass, or whether it's in the Breviary, or whether it's in the Rituale Romanum, and nobody ever talks about it and explains, well, why is it the way it is? And why specifically do we see how it's being used at the prayers of the foot of the altar? Let me guess, it's not an accident. No, and by the way, one of the other things we cover real quick in history is that, by the way, the preparatory prayers at the foot of the altar, as we see used in the Roman rite, they're different in other rites. Right. They use but, different psalms. They use there's there, there was in fact even in the Roman rite it wasn't it wasn't actually uh, identical until after the Council of Trent. But before that, you could see a whole number of variations being used from place to place to place. Even in the confidio are different saints in there, and you still see some of those variations being done. And those are some of the things that we actually talk about. You know, and so, di- different people would have different answers to this. But if you have the ability to travel in pl- in space and time someplace and see different things, one of the things I would love to see is the Sarum Rite prior to the wreck that happened with the English Reformation. I have heard that that is the most beautiful rite that existed in the entire Western Church. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if this is something that has been um, been glamorized after the fact. But, but yeah, the, the idea that there were all these different rites and what uh, Quote Primum did is said, if, if your missile is not more than 200 years old or older than living memory, then you've got to follow the Roman Missal. That didn't abolish anything. There's still the Dominican rite. There's still the Carmelite rite. There's the Masoretic. There's the thing up in Milan. Um, it, the Ambrosian. Right. So, correct. Um, There's not... the right of Lyon. Uh, that still does exist. Um, 
Now, the thing is, by the way, the Sarum Rite, this might be a shocker to a lot of your listeners, but when you hear about um, Reformation England and you hear about the, you know, the persecution of the Catholics in England, and they're talking about keep the mass, keep the faith, they're talking about the English rites of mass, whether it's a Sarum Rite, the Rite of York, the Rite of Lincoln. The Sarum happened to be the most, the one that was used the most. Um, it had already been adopted by all the Southern dioceses. It was on its way to pretty much superseding all the rights of England, eventually becoming the the English right, the predominant English. It already was predominant English right. So people what don't realize is the Roman right didn't come to England, so to speak, until after Henry VIII suppressed not only the church, but the seminaries. And so all the seminarians went to Rome to learn the Rome. And there they learned the Roman Rite. And when they came back to the English shores, they did not bring the Sarum Rite with them. They brought the Roman Missal with them. And that's what they started using. So you hear about Father, you know, St. Edmund Champion as an example. Well, he was using a Roman Rite. He wasn't using one of the native English Rites. So this is the reason why the Sarum Rite went defunct, why the Rite of York went defunct, the Rite of Lincoln went defunct. And by the way, the Book of Common Prayer that you hear about so much being used by Anglicans, that's actually a hijacked prayer book from the Sarum Rite, which was unsanitized of much of its Catholic, you know, things that stood out as being Catholic, like a sore thumb. And then some of that Catholicism was kind of almost re-injected back in by high Anglicans and stuff. So um, certainly the Sarum Rite is one of the most um, elaborate of it's really it's a it's a latin rite um with gallican influences you have others that are as well whether it's like the rite of leon whether it was the parisian rite uh, like i said the rite of york rite of lincoln um the sarum just happened to be the best known um in england it, it seems to have been the best loved in england as well too um so i mean certainly you had um it would be interesting i mean there have been there was at least one reconstruction done um, several years back. It was done for Candlemas, which, by the way, is very near and dear to the English, um, that one in particular. Um, and it was very interesting to see it, um, how it was done and everything. Um, so, yes, I mean, uh, my my personal favorite is the Roman Rite. When I compare all the others, because I love the sense of order, the sense of logic. The, the 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 Roman sense of 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 tierceness of brevity, um, and especially for today's modern senses, I think the Psalm rite would end up being considered in some ways very long uh, to some people because it, in many ways it is very long compared to like the Roman rite. Um, so it, it would almost be like the English countryside where you have a roundabout to get to, to get to a roundabout to get to a roundabout, as opposed to a Roman laid-out city, which is very orderly and grid, just straight to the point. Yes, yes, to some some degree. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you would understand what's going on in the Psalm right. It's very, very similar to the Roman right. I mean, it it is the Roman right with with extra lots stuff. of flourishes. Yeah, lots of flourishes. Yeah, that kind of stuff. So. Um, there's, uh, and some of those Sarum right pra- or English practices you still would see done even the, what now, obviously in, in England with the restoration of the hierarchy in England and everything, they continued to use the Roman right, but they, they actually did resurrect a few of these English practices that they have. Um, so you still see bits and pieces of that being done. Um, as an example, like the use of what they call a verger, who was the guy carried a staff in front of the entire processional group. It's not something you see commonly done in, you don't see it in America. Okay. He's basically what we, what they call the sexton, which is kind of a combination sacristan slash head usher is what he was. Okay. And that was very, that was something you, it was a normal uh, position often held by a lay person in parish churches all over England before the Reformation. Uh, in fact, the Anglicans kept that position of it. And in fact, in the Episcopalians have something called a church warden. It's the same thing. They stole it from the Catholics. Probably not the only thing. No, not by far. So somebody who's interested in learning how to serve, obviously it helps if you know a little bit about the pronunciation of Latin. Um, it helps if you understand at least something about the, the Latin mass, but you can come into this 
and learn everything you need to. What if what if somebody is not confident in their ability to pick up Latin? Is there going to be the ability to do uh, some like overtime one on one? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. In fact, so we have the we have the four we have the four weeks of three days each, but then there's the testing period. And it's as I tell everyone during the webinar, the testing period really is part of your formation, your Latin training, because to be honest, it's very rare that someone passes their first test and the testing takes, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes, depending on what we're going through. And and I'm also different in what I do, because for instance, as an example, during testing stage, I break things down into chewable bites for people. So I notice someone's having trouble with what I call the first panel of the card, which is the prayers of the footy altar up to the me that I opt to a prayer. If I notice they're having trouble, I don't go any past, I don't go past that. In fact, I may not even go past the second prayer. I might just say, you know what, for now, I want you to just concentrate on this. Let's knock this out because if you're trying to do it all at once, it's going to be impossible for you. You're never going to really learn it. So my, my, my goal is that not only do they know what the correct way of pronouncing Latin is, but they can do it with confidence. And when you can do it with confidence, it means you really know it. And also it's not, just with confidence, you know what you're saying as you're saying it. And that's the other big thing is there are several exercises I give them where not only they have to look it up in the Bible or look it up in their missile, but they have to write it out in English. Because I say, you know, I want you to know exactly what you're saying. And I want you to know what the priest is saying and you're responding to him. Because it does. the problem is a typical altar server, he ends up memorizing. First problem is he ends up memorizing a bunch of sounds like a parrot. So he has no idea what he's saying. It doesn't make words. it invalid, but I understand exactly no, what you're no, saying. No, no, it doesn't make it invalid, but he doesn't he doesn't know even how to spell the word latificat. He just knows it's this word latificat, and he has no idea what the word even means. Or worse yet, you people know, who don't realize that spiritu tuo are two words. Yeah, there's an example there too. So, um, you know, as an, so this is the thing is again, the confidence much of the confidence comes from comprehension of what you are saying, not just how it should be said, but what are you saying? And then why are you saying that? What is the purpose of this prayer at this particular moment? And, and uh, in fact, you brought up about how sometimes we use only a part of a Psalm an extract. And as an example, one of the things I love to describe because I even have priests asking me this who have no idea, you know, after the confitior is said, and we say, Deus tu converses vivificabis nos, et plebs tua letabi torrente. What's an extract from Psalm 84? Well, I'm not going to give away the farm on the show. There's a very significant reason why that psalm's been chosen. And in fact, why a bow is required by the rubrics while saying those lines. From Psalm 84. I'll give it away. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm asking for the coming of the Messiah. Which makes sense when you're talking about the prayers at the foot of the altar being symbolically taking place at the Garden of Eden and in the Old Testament. And I was just thinking, as, as you're saying all this, I, I trained servers for six years when I was uh, coming up through through high school. And honestly, the the way we the way I did it, the way we did it, the way we were trained to train was basically to reproduce the sounds correctly. And um, it, where I went to school, about ninth grade, tenth grade, you well ninth grade you started Latin classes, and and sometime during the ninth or tenth grade years, it was not uncommon for for kids who had been serving for four or five six years already. Once they hit ninth and tenth grade, and they're starting to take Latin for the first time, and they're regurgitating these sounds, uh, the words. I mean, they're 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 serving mass and they're saying the words of serving, but for the first time, they're actually understanding what it is they're saying, and they would trip and fall flat on their on, on their ability to to recite this. Uh, it happened to me, you know, reciting the confidior, and it's like I'm actually thinking about the words and understanding what I'm saying for the first time in years, even though I've read it in English. But just to understand what I'm saying while I'm saying it in Latin, uh, it it was not uncommon for the servers to just all of a sudden freeze because you're thinking about the the words in Latin. It's like, oops, I lost play, I lost track of where I was, and it's probably a whole lot better to learn what you're saying and understanding what you're saying while you're learning it so that you don't have that kind oh. of a... 
And then we integrate to this as well. One, one further step that we integrate is all the gestures and reverences that go along with these prayers. So we, we actually, part of the course, like for instance, one of the first courses, we'll actually talk about just the first thing about folding your hands. What's the correct way to fold your hands? Why do you fold your hands this way? Uh, we also about the sign of the cross, the two different types that are used, the different bows that we use, um, the turns that are made to the priest at the confidior. So we, we go, th- it's a completely integrated course. It, it's nothing is, 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 Anything that's associated is in that course that goes with those prayers at that time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the exception would be, um, well, no, it doesn't, doesn't even cover that. I was going to say, you know, if you were to ring the bell, we we're not going to cover that. But, you know, there's just no, there's not a single time where you ring the bell and you make a response. Um, so, um, in any case, and, and by the way, um, just to point out, in addition to the server's card, in addition to the Latin webinar, I also have a book, The General Principles of Ceremonies, which is good even for lay people to better understand the logic, the practicality behind these ceremonies and the etiquette that follows. There's also ceremonial notes that I offer that I developed um, for years, which are considered some of the most accurate out there and the most detailed, that is, the most comprehensive. Um, they're all available through my my website, romanitaspress.com. Just go to ceremonial notes for low mass, for high mass, Holy Week, uh, Candle Mass, Ash Wednesday, Requiem, Nuptial. So it's all up there. Um, any case, so um, I'm also developing other courses. Eventually, we're trying to put some training videos together, um, trying to do the um, MC seminar, or I would call it the MC boot camp, uh, where we present And that's Master of Ceremonies of, for High Mass, right? Master of Ceremonies for High Mass for Solemn Mass. And that's a very, very involved uh, program um, normally you the know, master of ceremonies to... has to know not only what what they are doing but what every other server is doing and what the priest is supposed to be doing precisely and there's a lot of background knowledge that they have to know a lot of book knowledge that they have that an MC should know because it does come into play during these ceremonies in a way that people never even expect and that's why these a lot of places they end up having you know I, I, I keep saying an MC is not a glorified page turning acolyte he must literally be the master of the ceremony. He must, because a lot of the priests also really need to be able to rely on their master of ceremonies, not just for helping with the servers, but even to kind of guide them so they don't lose their prayerful flow as they're going through the mass. They can just get a little nudge from the MC or a little word from him, discreet word from him. And they're, you know, they never lost a, they never lost a beat, you might say, in going through all this. So anyway, that's something else that's coming down the line as well, too. We're trying to trying to get that all all going. But I, I have a, 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 a lot of resources available already for anybody who wants to pick up serving. And it doesn't matter what your age is, to be honest. I mean, this is the adage of you can't teach an old dog new tricks is it, totally false. So well, you if, if you've been man, going to if you've been going to mass, then it's not really a new trick. It's just a, a new level of participation. Yeah, it really is. And and, um, you know. And for people who are like, well, I want to learn serve mass, but I, I don't even really know it that well. So I've, I've we've already had a lot of people sign up uh, to the Latin webinar that's going to be held uh, next week, and I have at least three gentlemen, older gentlemen, and one of them said, well, last time I served mass was 1967, and the other ones were like, I've never served it at all. We've only just started going to traditional mass, and I said, well, I have another book called The Mass Up Close and Pictures. It's 80 pictures of the what the priest is doing up close. You can see what he's doing. And I said, you know, if you take that and put it side by side to your daily missile, or at least the text of the mass, you now can see prayer by prayer by prayer what the priest is doing exactly at the altar. And it gets you more familiarized with the order of the mass and what he's doing. So you don't feel like a fish out of water trying to learn how to serve the mass. Of course, there's so many videos out there on YouTube now that you can watch. It's really quite easy to pick it up. And here's the thing. If you just come from the Novus Ordo, it's really not that much different. It's the same order. I mean, obviously a few things like we don't have uh, um, the, um, uh, the, the prayers of the faithful for the, you know, please save the blue whales or something like that. You know, that's not there. Okay. Okay. Well, you just, 
hack that. Okay, there's only there's only usually there's only an epistle and a gospel. There isn't a third reading. Okay, once in a while there is a third reading, like on an Ember Day, which we just had last week. Okay, but it's just really making those minor adjustments. But for the most part, from from A to Z, it's going to be pretty much the same. It it doesn't change that much. What about rubrics? And, and I apologize, you mentioned this already. How how important is it to learn? And is there even such a thing as proper rubrics? I've I've Absolutely. served in numerous places uh, throughout the United States, and there's always slight variations wherever you go. Um, is there, first off, such a thing as standard correct rubrics, and does it really make that big of a deal if it's different at one location versus another? Yes, I would say ultimately it does. So first thing is, um, one of the characteristics of Romanitas to be Roman is this, this juridical sense of of order and of 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 authority and in fact rubricians who have been writing for you know at least two three centuries have very much emphasized the fact that we should be following exactly the roman rite as it is in the liturgical books now then of course you have rubricians you have the sacred congregation of rites they um end up detailing more things that aren't necessarily in the in in the actual liturgical books because they tend to give basics not lots of detail but it's been very well solidified. And I would say, especially to Americans, fellow Americans, hello, my fellow Americans. Um, we actually have a set of rubrics that have force of law in our country. And most of Americans are completely oblivious to this. So we get, God bless these priests who have come in from other countries or whatever, but they didn't impose their foreign practices on us when in fact they shouldn't be doing that because it's like we Americans going to France and telling the French to follow our rubrics. I'm sure that would go over just great. Yeah, that would go over great in Paris, okay? But we actually, and by the way, we Americans and the British are very similar in these matters. And in fact, we're very Roman in these matters. We're not superfluous. We don't exaggerate things. We're very balanced. Um, we Anglo-Americans share a commonality when it comes to like law, to, to jurisprudence. This is why the British and the Americans are the kings uh, in, in matters legal. Okay, we're, why do we have all the detective shows and everything like that? And Because we're known for it more than like the French, okay? Well, I mean, the French are known for Inspector Clouseau, but that's entirely different. That's entirely different. I mean, he's not even, by the way, he's just, he's just a police officer. He's not actually a trial lawyer, okay? There's a difference there. We, we, and this is part of our, by the way, this is part of Romanitas in Anglo-American culture. We're Roman without even knowing it. All right. And and we Americans are very Roman when it comes to liturgy, by the way. So we have, in fact, the American bishops decided very early on um, in, in 18 uh, in the first plenary council of Baltimore. Uh, they they had decreed we will only follow the Roman books and we will only use the Roman books. And they actually commissioned um, the future bishop. Uh, Giuseppe Rosati or Joseph Rosati, as we know him in America, the first bishop of St. Louis, Missouri, to compile the first rubric or ceremonial book for the United States. It was called the, basically the um, the book of, uh, sorry, the, sorry, I'm blanking out. It's called the Baltimore Ceremonial for short. Let's just put it this way, okay? And it was prescribed to be used in all the churches of the United States of America. In fact, by the way, it was actually given to the Pope to approve personally, which he did. It was the first of its kind to receive that kind of papal approbation. Um, and it, this was, was supposed to be used throughout. And what's interesting about uh, Joseph Rosati, by the way, he was a Vincentian who came from the Roman province who was used to the practices in Rome and the papal states. So this is what he puts into his book. Okay, so we have this great Roman lineage in our country, and it, it's very clear that we should be following these rubrics because they're there for several reasons. First thing is we, we don't want to make things up, okay, and come up with our own things. No, there's, there's things that from actual authorities, from people who actually know these things, you know, who have backgrounds in theology and canon law and philosophy and liturgy. They've, they've, you know, so they, you have that, you have the sense of authority that's going on. You have a sense of practice going on. Okay. Rubrics also help to protect us. You might say against human foibles, 
Okay. So, you know, we don't exaggerate things. We don't do things lax. Okay. Um, you know, imagine the priests not, we've seen what's happened with the Novus Ordo because there's almost no rules at all. I mean, people ask me all the time, well, I'm, you know, can I do the, you know, when I'm doing a, a, a priest webinar for the priests, they'll ask me, well, you know, what's the rule for this in Novus Ordo? I said, there is no rule in the germ. There's no rule at all. It just says, it doesn't say, you know, there's almost like no rules at all. It's completely laissez-faire, whatever you want. But the, the, the beauty about the traditional liturgy, because the priest is instructed minutially what to do with his hands, what to do with his head, what to do with his body, he never has to guess, what am I going to do from this mass to that mass to this mass to that mass? Very conveniently, in the, in the missile, there's these set of rubrics that never change almost. And he knows exactly what he has to do from mass to mass to mass to mass to mass. And in fact, priests, when they get accustomed to this rubrical sense of the traditional mass, they find it very comfortable. They find it very comforting because they're like, I don't even have to think about what I do and I can just pray because I'm being told what to do. I was just going to say that I've heard it said in other contexts that the the constraint is liberation, that when you have very defined um very well-defined uh, rules for how you go about doing things. Then once you memorize how to do that and once you go within it, you have the ability, and I, forgive me for using this term, you have the ability to fall into like a Zen-like state to concentrate on what you're doing at a deeper level. I mean, Zen sure. is the wrong word here, but prayer was yeah. pro- is, is, is much, much better the it's right word. It's a spiritual word. state. It's a, it's, yeah. A, yeah. it's a spiritual state. A, a mental prayer state is, is what it is. And, and, and by the way, you know, so again, um, you know, one of the things, be, human nature being what it is, we're fallen creatures. You know, Robertians have longed to see a, a sense of unity, um, you know, and you see this in their works, but they also understand there's going to be minor little differences because of your sanctuary layout and this or that. But in general, for instance, the general principles of the Roman right. So I wrote a book. That's its title. The general principles of the Roman right. Those don't change. When you genuflect and why you genuflect, that doesn't change when you bow and what you bow, what you bow for, what kind of bow you should make. That really doesn't change. It's universal. And, and this is, a, these are the places where you have, unfortunately, people don't know the general principles very well. Um, part of that issue is you get into rubrical manuals and different rubricians write things different ways and give a certain amount of details for, compared to others. Okay. Um, and I, I found this, many you know many many years ago when the dinosaurs were still roaming the earth and i was first getting involved in liturgy i was i was finding it frustrating i couldn't find every all these general principles in one nice little handy volume i ended up developing my own okay but i i mean it's not something i made up it's something i you know is researched and it's based off what these guys have to say what's actually latent in the actual liturgical books themselves um you know so again it's it's important that we're doing this because again, by the way, these general principles, again, it's, it shows forth visibly this characteristic of Romanitas that we do things because they make sense, logic, and they're practical, which are the, you might say the two columns that the Romans were known for the two characteristics that the Romans were known for the best was logic and practicality. That's really what defines Romanitas. And we see that constantly in the liturgy. Um, and it's so beautiful when you see that done. Um, I know you get people who like, I, maybe part of it is they don't see the Roman mass being done as well as it should be. But, you know, they have this hankering after the Eastern rites because they are superfluous. There is a lot of extra stuff going on, a lot of decoration and stuff. But when you when you really see the Roman mass being done well with a sense of Euridical sense of orderliness and 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 there's there's no it's just it's beautiful it's beautiful um and, and i actually got to witness this myself personally once when many years ago uh i decided to uh i went to a byzantine and it was my first time actually seeing a byzantine live and after it was done it just so happened that um the traditional high mass was still going on in my, in my parish. And so me and my friend, we rushed back and we, we actually rushed up to the choir loft and we, we happened because we were allowed to sit up there at that time. 
And as we got up into the choir loft, the torchbearers were just being led into the sanctuary uh, at the Sanctus. Uh, by the way, these were the servers I had trained. And I'm watching these torchbearers come in in this very orderly procession, take their places in front of the sanctuary and kneel down. I'm seeing, and I'm just watching all this unfold in front of me after I've just watched this flurry of action at the Byzantine. And I'm just like, oh, wow, I just love my Roman right. It was beautiful to see the contract. Now, nothing to say bad. The Byzantine right is beautiful, of course. I love the Eastern rites. But to see your Roman right, after you've seen that, you're just like, wow, I am proud to be Roman. I have nothing else to add to that. I mean, obviously, I, I only know the Roman right. I think I've only gone to one or two Byzantine right masses in, in my life. And once was after going to mass uh, already on Sunday. And it was it was actually Greek Orthodox, so I don't know if that really counts. But uh, I was just kind of curious, like what what exactly are they doing here? Um, and the other one was when I was in the Navy, and it was some place where they didn't have the the uh, the Latin Mass there, and, and somebody said, "Hey, you can go to this one." And, and I went to the to the to the, to the uh, they said it was Byzantine, but they were speaking English, and I did not recognize any of it. And said, "Okay, I'm going to go outside and pray my rosary." It was weird. It was strange to me, but. Um, long story short, let's, let's recapitulate this real quick. If you are thinking about taking this course, if you want to learn how to serve the mass, uh, is there any, basically, I guess, long story short, yes, just do it. I mean, you, it, sure. the worst, even if you would never end up serving the mass, you're going to end up understanding a whole lot more about the, the, about the ceremonies, about the rubrics, why the prayers are what they are, why things happen. Um, well, and here's the other thing too, especially a note to fathers. Um, fathers, you of families. can fathers of families, you can pass this on to your children. Um, there's no, by the way, there's no reason why your daughters can't learn these responses. My my wife, she grew up in a family; she learned the responses just along with her brothers. She learned the responses just as well. They all learned the responses. Her their father expected them to know it. I'm going to train my daughter how to say the responses she's not going to serve mass of course but she might end up at a dialogue mass she should be able to know it. and again i want her to get a greater uh, appreciation a greater comprehension of what's going on during the mass and it is one of the best ways you can do it is knowing those responses of the servers is the first great step i would say and then if you want to read more on your own yeah i i think every catholic by the way i want to quickly mention we know from history by the way the dialogue mass a lot of people think this is something that came about in the 20th century in fact it was nothing more than a restoration of the traditional practice of attending public low masses before the cataclysmas of the french revolution the social upheavals throughout europe the anti-clerical movements when all these um, liturgical centers of Catholic life were destroyed, um, like especially to the monasteries and everything like that. But we know that we have writings from the 17th century, 16th century, 15th century, which attests to the faithful commonly making these responses at mass. And they knew them. They may have been illiterate, but it's not terribly different. Remember, most Europeans speak several languages too back then. Um, we Americans tend to think of one language, you know, only, but, um, Europeans tend to always know several languages. And this certainly was true in the middle ages as well. Um, and there's lots of evidence for that, by the way. So our quote unquote, illiterate ancestors were in some ways smarter than we were. Okay. Um, in, in, at least linguistically, um, in fact, we know that they knew their religion fairly well from the catechism of the stained glass windows of the churches. Um, we know that there were, I mean, there's an interesting um, group out there called Tradvox, and they're bringing out now all these old catechisms. Um, they have one from the, I think it's the 13th century that was produced in English, medieval English, that was meant for the faithful. It was meant for the pastor of the church to quiz the faithful of his parish with. This is a 13th century catechism in English. Is this, and something, that, through, is this something that Romanitas Press might 
might be reproducing anytime soon? No, no, no. They've done it. They've okay. done it on their website. They're um, actually Sophia Press now is um, producing. They're trying to produce all these things back into books. Um, one of the goals behind this is to show that the catechism or teachings of the faith, which unfortunately are subject to much denial, controversy, doubt today, have not been in doubt for the last, you know, how many hundreds of years? You can trace this back through all these catechisms throughout Europe. Going, I'm back to they're going to do some in America as well. The ones that were developed for Indians. It's really fascinating work. They've been able to get into all these libraries and find all these texts that weren't really, you know, open to the public before. Now they're able to get them, you know, gain them scanned in and whatever because they were on microfilm or whatever or hands off portion of the library. You couldn't touch it, you know unless you were in a hazmat suit or something, I don't know. But, um, you know, so it's really interesting to, 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 when we talk about our, our medieval ancestors, you know, we tend to have the superiority complex um, towards them as if we're much smarter and better than they were. And, and in many ways, we're really not. They really did have a much, I would say, a better appreciation um, of the liturgy, certainly of Latin. We know, we, in fact, we know in many places, by the way, for the Sunday obligation, it was considered by some moral theologians up until the 1917 Code of Canon Law that not only were you required to go to Mass to fulfill your Sunday obligation, but Sunday Vespers. So imagine you've got the faithful who are attending Vespers every single Sunday. What's going to happen when you hear that Latin over and over and over again? And Latin's being used commonly as it is, and you're picking up vocabulary. You're going to learn it. It's called osmosis. It's called immersion method. It's how we learned English at our at our mother's knees without even knowing it. Uh, and we have testimony from the Middle Ages, by the way, that we know a lot of the faithful did. Uh, in medieval England, by the way, uh, in most typical parish churches, the entire divine office, all eight canonical hours, were actually said by the pastor with a cleric, who's normally a layperson, and they were said every single day in choir, out loud, and women and children and old men would regularly attend these functions. We know this. We have testimony of this from various sources in the Middle Ages. So the fact is the faithful had uh, not only a greater appreciation, but a greater devotion to the, to the liturgy. And, um, you know, part of the liturgical movement was to try to bring some of that, to bring that back. And it just so happened the dialogue mass got, you might say, got restored with the restoration of Gregorian chant, they were they were integral to each other. In fact, I'm, I'm sure that's a topic. Yeah, that's definitely a topic I want to uh, talk to you about at another time. the The idea of uh, prior to 1962, what were the legitimate um, reforms that needed to be done that were contemplated and anticipated uh, in the Second Vatican Council, but things went a different direction. Obviously. Um, I did not know the history of the of the dialogue mass going back, but then again, I'm not surprised by it either. Um, and I wrote a couple. Um, so there's a lot of unfortunate misconceptions about the dialogue mass. Some people consider it it was an invention, a modernist invention or modernist novelty of the, the 20th century. And I've had to set people straight and say, no, there's all these writings. By, by the way, somebody the, the interesting thing about these writings. We're talking about ambassadors writing to other ambassadors about different practices they're seeing in different countries that they get assigned to. So these, these aren't just, you know, any old letter. They're actually, you know, of noted people. I mean, one of them Legitimately was, uh, educated people. Precisely. One of them is a, who he wrote as a cardinal. Um, it was, uh, and, and later he became Pope. He wrote a book on the liturgy itself. Um, there were probably more sources that, that came up after um, some of these were found. But, you know, it's all out there. But what I was getting at is I wrote two articles that was published in The Remnant a few years ago. If you go up to my website, romanitaspress.com, and you go to articles, you'll actually see it about the dialogue mass. And there's a lot of stuff in there where I basically uh, blow up a lot of these liturgical myths that seem to gravitate around the dialogue mass. People, unfortunately, a lot of people see red when they when they hear about the dialogue mass, congregational singing, liturgical movement. And it's true. There are portions of the liturgical movement that did go off the rails or the rightful aspiration of the liturgical movement are often hijacked to give legitimacy to what they did in the Novus Ordo, but we must understand there was an actual break between what the Novus Ordo did and what St. Pius X actually wanted 
And what Pius XII actually encouraged the liturgical movement to do in his great encyclical on the liturgy of 1947, Mediatur Dei. And you, I, by the way, if you want to understand what liturgy really should be, you read that encyclical, Mediatur Dei. Again, it's also on my website. I republished the whole text up there. It's an absolutely fantastic encyclical. And by the way, if they had followed Mediatur Dei, we wouldn't have had the new mass. Because everything that's condemned in Mediatur Dei about what you should not do, you find in a new mass. And I also gave, uh, there's um, under my video talk section, there's a conference um, that I gave um, for Fatima Center, and it's on Mediatur Dei. And it's it's an hour long conference, and you can hear me talk. And I, you know, so I'm, it's 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 very interesting when you examine Mediatur Dei. We we absolutely are going to have to do this again. Um, okay. <laughs> Yeah, this is this has it. been awesome. I mean, I, honestly, I really wanted to just kind of. My encouragement tap. is: there's nothing to set. You know, even if you never want to become an altar server, there's no reason in the world why you can't learn the responses. It's good for you. Period. I, I'm, in fact, my what I often tell people is that you know, it's a Catholic thing to do. That's that's what I was going to say. Even 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 if the goal isn't necessarily to learn how to serve the mass, if you want to understand the mass better and be able to get more from it, uh, the rule of theology: the more properly disposed you are to receive something, the more you will receive. So, right. even if you take this course without the intention of ever serving mass, you are going to understand at a level you've never understood before. And and even just in this conversation, Lewis, I've right. understood some things about liturgy that I thought I knew some things because I trained servers for several years, and uh, it's not like I you now am new to tradition i uh I, I think my family uh glommed onto tradition at like the literally the about six months after the society came sspx came to the united states so we've been i i've never known anything but the old mass and yet what you were saying there about uh, the dialogue mass going back five six hundred years that was new to me so uh the larger point here if if you were thinking about whether or not you you should uh, learn how to serve mass absolutely whether or not you're going to serve mass or not it's going to improve your your spiritual life it's going to therefore you know make absolutely. allow you to grow grow closer to god and that's ultimately what matters the most lewis i, thank I like you. to say that people can attend mass for purpose absolutely i mean it's uh, even if you put your head in your missile fine but you know, when you can close your missile, so to speak, and just follow it by hearing, which is what our ancestors did for the most part, you'll find your, I mean, I'm not telling people don't use your missile. You absolutely use a missile, but you'll find that if you can close your missile and kind of, and you can follow that way there, it's just, I don't know how to explain it except that you just feel ever more united to the whole, to the actions of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It's just, you know, and I, I use a missile too. I mean, but there are times I know that I can literally close it and follow it. And, and I, I, you know, um, and, and, and there's just, just a deeper sense of union because of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. The website for those who are interested is romanitaspress.com. I'll have the link in the show notes. You're also on Facebook and any place else people should check out. Uh, Twitter on occasion, you know, basically, you know, but Facebook is kind of a big one, but, um, yeah. And if you want to join my, my email updates for free, of course. Um, and, and by the way, I, I do, you know, people have got questions or are looking for stuff. I'm happy to try to help out as I can. Um, I always want people to try to, to deepen their love and their appreciation and knowledge of the liturgy. Um, mine is hard one itself. Uh, tons and tons of reading, tons and tons of questions. Um, I've been absorbed by this um, for the last 20 something years. Um, and, you know, so I don't expect everyone to have the time or effort to put into it. So that's why I try to make it as easy as possible for other people, you know, and, and everybody's at a different level of things, um, you know, but anyways, you know, but I have a lot of other, um, as an example, if you want to learn one point during the traditional mass, um, the saints that are mentioned during the canon of the mass. Well, I have a book on that. The mass, the, the saints who pray with us in the mass. Oh, absolutely. Every, by... Everyone who's listening, even though we've been talking about learning how to serve the mass and learning about uh, the history of the mass and, and several other things, check out the the entire collection over at Romanitas Press. You you are going to end up learning that you that what there is to learn is more than you thought there was. Uh, Lewis, this has been absolutely awesome. We're definitely going to do this again. Uh, the, okay, the class the class for altar servers starts on October 5th and uh, before the uh, the priest webinar starts we're gonna have to talk to you again soon to uh, talk talk about that 
Yes. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And to learn more about Lewis and his operation, Romanitas Press, please visit romanitaspress.com. Check the show notes for links and for more information, and not just the server uh, server course coming up, but all of the courses that and all the books that he has. Uh, Lewis has done a tremendous amount of research over the last uh, couple of decades on the Latin Mass and assembling notes that that never exist in a singular forum. Um, he's, he's a great resource. And if you have questions, just email him. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely include a link to his or give his email address in the uh, show notes. Uh, you will learn a lot talking to Lewis about uh, the Latin Mass or about any number of other topics. And that's where I'm going to leave it for episode negative one. Hopefully by the time I get to uh, episode zero, which is somewhat of a mission statement of what I hope the Roman Agenda podcast to be, it'll be a little bit better formatted. I might have some theme music. I should definitely be a little more organized and have things sound a little more, um, a little have a little more symmetry from start to finish. Um, but until then, I am Roman McLean, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. <laughs>